All right, this morning is August 12th. It is 2007. Our message is called Two Sparrows this morning. My wife was asked to sing at her grandmother's funeral a song called His Eye is on the Sparrow. If our church was not so far removed from the traditional settings, we would have sang it this morning, but it's a bit of a stretch for us to pick up some of the traditional hymns after being non-traditional so long. But let me read you these first few lines of this. Why should I feel discouraged? Boy, that's a great question, isn't it? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? My constant friend is He. His eye is on the sparrow and I know He watches me. Those words did not just appear on a page. They came out of the deep recesses of somebody's heart who was soul-searching about why they were struggling with the feelings that they were struggling with. Apparently feelings that they described as discouragement and shadows. And they decided somewhere in the midst of that that if God cared about a little bird, that He must care about them. And they decided to let that be their portion and their rock and their anchor. And the song goes on to say, I sing because I'm happy, and I sing because I'm free, for His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. Saints, something that should mark our lives is an intimate knowledge that no matter how deep the shadows are, how discouraging the facts around us are, we sing because we're happy. We sing because we've been set free from the power of the circumstances around us to pull us down. We have a supernatural ability for our faith to rise to meet the challenges of life. Basically, what we're saying is that our trust in the King outweighs what our eyes and senses tell us all around us. So that when there's a layoff on your job, there is a sickness in your body, a death in your family, or whatever heart-wrenching thing the devil has managed to bring your way, you're able to dig down deep into the recesses of the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you and sing because you're happy and sing because you're free. We come from a rich, long heritage of Christians that have done this as they were sold into slavery around the world, as they were abused by monarchies and governments around the world, and it continues to this day. And in the light of their suffering, all suffering seems light, and momentary. It's time to get a proper perspective on it. I want to talk to you about the setting that we're in for a moment. I want to get this just kind of out there. There has been something that is going on since for sure the 50s forward. I'm certain that it probably originated much, much earlier than that. But the devil is often patient in his schemes and his bitter roots that are taking or seeds that he's sown that have taken root and are growing in our society, we're seeing fruit from at the moment. There's a full-scale effort to marginalize the role of the Creator. You know what I mean by marginalize? To discredit Him. To act as if maybe He doesn't even exist. To ignore His influences. There's a reason for this. Ultimately, when you marginalize the Creator in your thoughts, in your educational aspects, in your environment, what you have done is devalued the creation. What makes a Rolex watch, as Matt's example in the worship, what makes a Rolex watch important is who made it. I mean, you love its craftsmanship, but let's be honest. 
What makes a Gucci bag something women want to buy? If you take the Gucci label off of it, are they as excited about it? Don't tell me that you bought a car because the emblem that is on the car is synonymous with something people don't want to drive. Recently, there was a study done about the the Toyota Prius versus the Honda Civic, two hybrids. The Civic is cheaper than the Prius, and every bit is well made. The companies have similar backgrounds. They hold their resale value in similar ways. But the study found that the Prius outsells the Civic because it looks like a hybrid while the Civic is indistinguishable from other cars. Why would that be? Because the owners didn't buy it simply because of the way that it drove or its resale value or its economics. They drove it because they thought that the owners and their buying it were making a statement about their beliefs revolving around environmental concerns. What I'm trying to say about all of these things is that what we think about the Creator ultimately speaks of what we think about ourselves. We've taught our children that they may have evolved from some primeval, primordial slime. And then we're surprised when they act in slimy ways. Rather than teaching them that they were created in the image of the living God, we've instead taught them that they evolved from primitive mammals, the animal kingdom. And so the children have begun to act like animals. The Bible paints a vastly different view. The Bible begins with the words, in the beginning. And what comes next, saints? God created the heavens and the earth. You need to understand that for its day, Moses writing this in 1600 B.C., this was an incredibly unique claim. We had gods of the sun, gods of the harvest, gods of virility, gods that revolved around nature. What we did not have was somebody standing up and claiming that there was a God that was above them all who made everything. The God of our Bible is very, very unique. And the creation itself witnesses something about Him. I want to read to you a brief quote from a book that Grant Jeffries wrote. I'm not a huge fan of Grant Jeffries. I'm a huge fan of Grant Jeffries' book. Can you all understand the difference between the two? You do not have to discredit everything that something, someone does in their life because you disagree with some phrase that they put in literature. The mature person should be able to look at people for what we are, dichotomous individuals. Salt water and fresh water coming out of the same spigot. <laughs> a love for God and actions that support it and also a love for self and actions that support that. But we choose to cling to that which is good and reject that which is evil. Well, here's something that is good. Here's a quote. As late as 1915, astronomers believed that our galaxy composed the entire universe. Then in 1925, the great astronomer Edwin Hubble, y'all recognize him? The Hubble telescope? Used his new 100-inch mirror telescope on Mount Wilson, the largest in the world at that time, to view new galaxies of stars that were more than six Million trillion. You know, my kids say things like that. (laughs) Million trillion. Until recently, I didn't know there was such a thing. 
But if you take trillions and multiply it out so many times that there is one million of a trillion, you get millions, trillions. <laughs> away from the earth. Professor Hubble proved that the universe contained as many galaxies outside our galaxy as there were stars inside our home galaxy, the Milky Way. During the last century, very powerful telescopes and astronomers revealed the known universe contains over 10 billion galaxies. Now, if these numbers are going way over your head, they do mine too. We're going to bring them down to something that is much more tangible here in a minute. However, in the last few months, this was written in 2002, scientists have used the Hubble telescope to focus on a tiny point in space, so small that it is equal to focusing your eye on an area the size of the grain of sand held at a man's arm length. This telescope is focusing on a point in space as small as something that if you held it up could be blocked out by a grain of sand held one arm's length from your body. Another way to say that might be if you held up the eye of a needle and glanced through it, the portion that you would be looking at of space is what this telescope is examining. After intensely examining this very small area of space, the astronomers determined that it contained an additional 1,500 galaxies, each the size of our Milky Way. They were astonished to discover that the universe is more than five times larger than we previously believed. They now know that the universe contains more than 50 billion galaxies, with each galaxy containing more than 200 million stars. Now I'm lost in the math. Let's just say there's a lot, right? The mind of man can scarcely conceive of such a vast universe. Do you think that was intentional? Do you think that that in itself, without going any further, begins to speak some message about how big God is? The creation witnesses of the Creator. And in that statement, what we're finding out is that the creation is vast beyond man's ability to comprehend. So what does that tell you about the entity that created it? Hmm. The mind of man can scarcely conceive of such a vast universe in which stars extend out from the solar system for millions of trillions of miles in every direction. To obtain a sense of the vastness of our universe, let's try this exercise. Is that okay, class? Can we try an exercise? This beautiful artistic representation before you is the sun. Nine inches below it is the earth. Sun, earth. Right? Now, this is to absolute precision scale. If every nine inches here represented 10 million miles, right? Nine inches, 10 million miles per inch. What do we have? 90 million miles is represented by this distance. To get to the next closest star, you would have to get in a car and drive from this point over 40 miles. Over 40 miles to get to the next closest star with every inch of those miles representing 10 million miles. Is that pretty big? Yeah. I would say that's pretty big. That star is so far away that light traveling at 187,000 miles every second takes over four years to travel that distance. And that's the closest 
star. And how many did we have? 50 billion with each, 50 billion galaxies, each with over 200 million stars. Would you say that that's big? What is that trying to communicate to us, I ask you? Turn with me to Psalm 33. In Psalm 33, let's begin in the first verse. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to Him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all He does. He loves, the Lord loves the righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of His mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars, and He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded it, and it stood firm. Before we go to the rest of this, we are painting a picture of a creation that should look at the magnificence of what God has created and stand in awe of Him. A very big creation points to a what? Very big God. An overwhelming creation points to an overwhelming God. And yet this psalm makes a remarkable point next. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He chose for His inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. The God of the vast universe, the God that is above all that we cannot even begin to comprehend in the 50 billion galaxies, each with 200 million stars, distances so far that they're inconceivable. The God who is above all of that, who made all of that, is doing something. He's seeing, watching all of mankind. One of the arguments about extraterrestrial life is it seems almost arrogant to some to say that we could be in such an enormous expanse of space and be the only life out there. Well, that is one way to look at it. Or you could feel incredibly special that the God who created all of that chose one place, one unique place to plug you into it. The only place so far that has ever been discovered that your life could exist and flourish. And more than that, this Creator watches your daily life that the purposes of His heart might be fulfilled in you. From His dwelling place, He watches all who live on earth. Saints, think about that for a second. Are you part of what lives on earth? Then He is watching you. Why do you think that the book of John recorded early on that Jesus said, I saw you, Nathaniel, while you were sitting under the fig tree? God wanted us to know, John wanted us to know that before you ever came to a saving knowledge of Jesus, before you ever met Him personally, His eyes were on you, considering all that you do. His eye has been on you from the very beginning. 
Because He cares. The overwhelming picture that the universe itself paints of God is that the enormity of the universe speaks of the enormity of God. And in light of that, man is insignificant and yet significant to God. If this were judged by your standards, by your reasoning, what would man be that you would be mindful of him? That you would take notice of him? But God is not like us. We are being transformed into His image now. He cares for the weak and the lowly. And His eyes are on you. If you have this image of God that He's watching you with a stick over your head waiting to hit you for doing something wrong, you've missed the picture. The fact that He's noticed your life at all ought to make you feel special. Have you ever been in a conversation with people and they begin to name drop? Yeah, well, I was with Beth Moore at such and such. You know, the other day, Bill Clinton and I, Matthew, remember that pastor of that church? We walked into his office. It took us 45 minutes for him to finish name-dropping every picture of every diplomat around the room that he had raised money with. After we cleaned up the vomit that we had all over the ground, we tried to carry on a meaningful dialogue. I was not nearly so impressed that this man had pictures of himself with presidents as I would be that he was intimate with the God of the universe, which he happened not to be. Saints, we are supposed to feel special that the God who determines the courses of the nations has His eyes on us. Look at verse 15, and I please, I'm begging you, slow down enough to engage this text. Imagine that it were a letter written to you the very first time and for just a second consider that it may be true. He who forms the hearts of all, that's a big task, isn't it? Who considers everything they do. God Himself weighs and considers the things that you do. The Proverbs say that He examines the motives behind your thoughts. My kids aren't important enough to me sometimes for me to sit and wonder why they thought something. And I'm their daddy. Don't, don't try to convince me that you love them so much you wondered why Judah spent all day yesterday catching turtles. I doubt that occupied anybody's thoughts in here. But God considers everything that He does. Because God is working in Him to form something. He's working in Him for a purpose. The writer of this psalm goes on to say, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all its great strength. It cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love. Why is God watching you? Is he just some kind of perverse stalker? Some sadist that delights in you feeling miserable. Have you never heard people say that? That God, if He is the way people say He is, is sadistic? Because He started the creation and now He just watches mankind struggle? And what about the starving in Africa? And blah, blah, blah. Smoke screen after smoke screen to avoid you from peering into my heart. That's all that is. Because God Himself watches us for verse 19. 
to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. The God who created the vastness of the universe also intricately knit you together. And His hand is upon you because He wants to deliver you from death. That's not the moment that you were in a car crash. That's the moment you became aware He was delivering you from death. But what this is, is He is delivering you from the power of death. Degenerate thinking. A sickness of spirit. A sickness of your body. He is here to deliver us from the power of death. Jesus is the personification of that. He said, you search the Scriptures diligently because you think that by reading them you obtain eternal life. And yet you refuse to come to Me and have life. Jesus' mission was to give us life, to reverse death in our lives. Because God cares. He sent His own ambassador to make an appeal to mankind to be reconciled to God, to be made right. And that ambassador became the chief shepherd, the Savior of the world. And He appointed twelve others who went out and appointed some more. Who went out and appointed some more and that extends even to this day. Paul considered himself an ambassador through whom God was making an appeal. And I consider myself the same way and look at you the same way. This all speaks of God's concern with His creation. Verse 20, We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May Your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in You. God considers everything that we do. He watches all who live on the earth. And the overwhelming message of that psalm is that He is there looking for a way to help you. Darren Shoemaker is with us this morning. Like every other human being, he has needs. To him, some of the needs seem great. To God, they seem small. The Scripture that I remember most and associate the most with Darren is that he looked at me one day and told me his favorite Scripture was Jeremiah 29.13. God's looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to Him that He might strengthen them. I want to be found by Him. He's watching all of mankind. Will you stand out? You ought to feel special that the God who created the vast expanse of space is concerned with what might consider Menial, mundane task in your life. How many coincidences are simply miracles that God did not get the credit for? My sister and I have experienced a revival in our relationship lately. This is none other than the working of God. It's not any different to me than hearing that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Something that had no life in it, something that was dry and brittle and seemed beyond hope, suddenly is full of life and vibrant and has a new beginning. That's an exciting thing to me. That's a witness of God. One of the things that my sister began to share with me this week as she was describing God's working in her life was her new desire to be an effective ambassador and be God's instrument in other people's lives. Saints, I want you to understand something. When you understand that you're special to God, 
When you understand that He picked you out of all of the creation for a purpose, you begin to get filled with something, a passion and a destiny to reward His interest in you by showing His interest in other people. This is the hallmark evidence that you have been touched by God. This takes it beyond theory. It takes it out of the cowardly and theoretical and brings it into action-oriented, faith-grounded trust in our God. She began to share with me a story about a cousin that I have who was raised in such vile alcoholism that she has never known what it is like to see a regular family except at a distance. We are in a society where it is common for people to whine about their backgrounds. You study the fall of the temples in Jerusalem. It got so bad, mothers ate their children. I doubt any of you came from that scenario. Mom didn't love me. Dad didn't love me. Wah. I'm sorry. I'm no longer impressed. How many people do you watch on the reality shows that say, you know, I was a crack baby. I don't care. I don't care. We were all equally fouled up. And this girl was just like the rest of all of us. Fouled up. And she began to ask my sister. She said, I have never felt special. I've never felt like anything went quite my way. Her sincere heart's desire was that she felt crushed as if nobody would ever see her as special. Nobody would ever see her as worth anything. She had to take an extra job. She works as a veterinarian. Not as a vet, but for a vet. She had to take an extra job cleaning someone's house. Usually when somebody hires you to clean their house, it's because they have an awful lot more money than you do. That's the case in this scenario. And as she's cleaning the house, the employer began to remark that she smelled of smoke. Lots of people have the stench of death on their life. Some that shows up in smoke, some that shows up in a foul, arrogant attitude. You might wonder which person stunk more in this scenario, but that's beside the point. My cousin was crushed and began to pour out her heart to my sister because that's what happens when you establish relationships with people that go beyond just sitting next to each other in church. You begin to care about each other's lives. You begin to open up and share something of yourself that we would call intimacy. Or as Charlotte once said, into me, I will let you see. And she told my sister that this broke her, that she took what she thought was the lowest of menial jobs, trying just to make a little extra money, and even that she seemed to fail at. Nothing was going her way. So my sister did something. She stepped out on a limb and said, Rachel, God loves you. That sounds so Sunday schoolish. Sounds so trite. I mean, we've all heard it. God loves you. I've always thought, what if he doesn't love that one? What if he goes home and pulls the toenails off of his kids? Do you really think God loves him? That's a whole other message. We'll debate that on our board or something. In this case, God does love this little girl. She said, God loves you, and I'm going to pray for you. That's so easy to say. How many people have you promised in the last month you would pray for them and never thought of them again? 
But when you are firmly in touch with the God of the universe reaching His hand down and touching you, you're looking for the opportunity to extend that into other people's life. And my sister has had that experience. So she began to pray for Rachel. She got a phone call later the same day. Rachel was in the line at Burger King. Yes, God can use Burger King. If it were me, I would use Whataburger. But God uses Burger King. Yeah, I mean, that's really not up for debate, is it? She's in line. She scrapes together $2 and some odd cents and buys a hamburger but cannot afford the Coke. And again, what is the devil right there saying? You are small. You are crushed. Nobody cares about you. You cannot even afford a hamburger. She buys it or orders it, pulls up to the window, and the car in front of her had bought her the whole meal. And she doesn't know them. Why would God do that? Because He is watching mankind. He is considering all they do. And He cared enough to encourage that little girl at the Burger King. So what do you think she did? She called my sister. And she began inquiring, how did the people in the front know? Did you call them? Did you tell them? Did you send them some money? Yes, Rachel, I'm connected all over the planet. I can instantly, through telekinesis, move money from my wallet into theirs so that they will instinctively know that you needed this. She said, well, I just don't know what to do. There's not even a way that I can say thank you. And now we have got to the point. There is nobody to give credit to except the living God. And this little girl is taking steps out of death that God wants to deliver her from and into life. I'm asking you to do a couple things here. Reflect on those kind of scenarios that have happened in your life. And if you unceremoniously dismiss what I'm telling you and say, oh, nothing like that's ever happened to me, you are an absolute fool. Idiot with a capital I. What do you call those? ID10T problems? Yeah, how about that? Spell that sometime. The coincidences that have happened in your life are simply God's unsigned miracles. The second thing is, when would it ever occur to you in the line at Burger King that God thought enough of you to reveal Himself to you and that maybe $4 invested in somebody's life for a Happy Meal could produce something eternal that could never be lost? How about the third party who feels helpless? Says, I can't do anything for Rachel. I've got no money. I can't do anything. But Rachel, I want you to know God loves you and I am talking to Him about you. How many of you want to play that part? It requires all of them. It requires somebody to make provision. It requires somebody to make prayer. And it requires somebody who is humble enough and loves God enough to receive. There's a whole group of people out there that would have refused the meal. <laughs> Too proud. I submit to you this morning that God's not left Himself without testimony. Turn with me to Acts 14. His eye is on the sparrow. Mandy, what is my favorite quote in the world from a man? The man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. 
That is something that I have clung to since my early days. Because before I knew anything about the Word, I knew I had experienced God. But friends, let us not forget there are people that don't understand the ways they've experienced God. Because it is cloaked in a society that has demeaned and marginalized the Creator. So that rain is no longer a gift from God. It's simply a natural process of evaporation and condensation. So that crops are no longer a gift from God. It's just the natural result of putting seed in the dirt. Unless, of course, it doesn't work. And then we call that an act of God. The rain's not a gift from God, but if it pours so much that it floods your house away, well, that was an act of God. Have you noticed the ways that our Creator has been marginalized? It makes it more and more difficult. It obscures His glory in the creation and our everyday speech. This is an active scheme, a war plan, a battle plan that you're getting insight into today by the enemy to do two things. Defame the King of creation and therefore demean you. Makes you less special. Makes you less important. Might make you hopeless. Surrounded by death and discouragement. Oh, not us. We know about the saving grace of Jesus. My wife and I were up at 2.30 in the morning having an extended theological discussion about what we knew about Jesus. The funny thing is, when you examine what you know about Jesus, it's a condemning thing if you're not careful. Because if you know it, then you must examine why you do not live it. We re-examined what we knew about Jesus last night we began to admit that perhaps we were in the process of learning this about Jesus. Because if you absolutely know that God is your provision, then why do you sit in anxiety? Yeah. If you absolutely know that the Lord is your joy, why are you ticked off? Well, I know it. Evidently not. When the angels announce this gospel, they say, we bring you good news of great joy. If that was being announced to the American church today, say, we bring you good news that will create a monotone, phlegmatic personality without expression. The way that you will serve God is sit like stones in church and collect dust. Good news of great joy. You cannot very well have received the good news if it has not produce great joy. This process is called data denial. Despite all of the data that says to the contrary, I'm going to cling to what I want to be true. I can play in the NBA. I'm four foot tall. You time my 40 on a calendar. You can't slip a playing card under my feet. But what I want to be true is that I can play in the NBA, so I will deny all of that data. Saints, take a sobering look at our lives. Understand. Do we really know that God is our provision? Do we really know that He's our source, our joy? Do we really feel like we are special? If you do, that should show up in your actions. And the first place you are to look is how you treat other people. Because you can't believe God says that you're special if you think your neighbor is a scumbag. Unless he is a scumbag. They exist. God hates feet that run towards wickedness, that lay in ambush to slay their brother. There are a lot of things that God hates. 
And let He loves this world enough to introduce His Son into it, to change it, to purge it from evil, to fix it. Y'all in Acts 14? I better hurry or we won't even get to the text we're supposed to cover. And Acts supposed to cover. Because from Springfield, Missouri, today I got sent my notes. No, I don't even know anybody in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, Acts 14, starting in uh, 15. Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. I had to tell you that, didn't I? Men, why are you doing this? I too am only a human like you. A little fatter, a little balder, but a human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. The claim about our God is that the vastness of the creation speaks of His glory because He made it all. In the past, He let all nations go their own way, yet He has not left Himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. God watches all of mankind. He provides for them things. This is His testimony. The fact that the sun comes up each day is a testimony about God. And it's speaking a message in a language that all men are capable of understanding if their hearts are so inclined. Saints, we need to adjust our vision. We need to begin to look and go, wow, perhaps that was not just a coincidence. Maybe God did not set me up to fail, but He set me up to succeed. And the evidences around me are just being misinterpreted. I had a difficult time in December of 2005. I stepped out December of 2004, I stepped out and did something that I believed was righteous because it was the right thing to do. I knew that it would cost me greatly, but just how greatly, I had no way of knowing. And as is my custom, I didn't spend very much time deliberating it because I didn't want to lose courage. I just jumped into it headlong, and it cost greatly. And there was an opportunity for doom and despair, and feelings of failure. And there's an enemy. Some call him the enemy, Satan. The accuser of the brethren. And he is right there telling me all the ways that I miss God. And what all of my friends will say. And some of those who are supposed to be friends but act more like enemies. What they will say. Y'all don't have any of those, I know. But I, I got a few. And before long, my world started to close in on me. The ironic thing is in the rearview mirror, I can look back to that month and go, wow, that was the place when you really began to adjust my life to achieve the vision that is on it. Why did it have to look so dark? Oh, that's right. What you like and apprise most is trust. You wanted to see if I would trust you. I'm sorry I didn't. And your mercy brought me through anyway. Saints, if you just examine your lives, God has not left Himself without testimony. Psalm 19 says that the creation pours forth speech day and night. What I'm wanting you to get from that, and I'm not going to read it all because I'm running out of time, is that this is a daily thing in your life if you just look. 
It's not, well, in 1993 I was born again. In 1972 I was born again. In 1977 I was born again. It is pouring forth speech daily. You just need to look. You will leave this church. Go somewhere to gorge yourself. Hopefully not to the point of satiation, but who knows. You'll go eat somewhere. How many cars will almost pull out in front of you, but you'll miss them? How many angels have been dispatched to keep you safe today? This morning on the way here, a man in a Jaguar who was exceeding a parking lot speed limit by at least five times had to lock up his tires and he came within inches of hitting me on the driver's side on the way to church. I guess it was just a coincidence that he looked up at just that moment. Hmm. How many miracles have you forgotten about that happened last week? How many does it take to get you through the average day? The creation speaks a message. Turn with me to Psalm 97. Y'all still with me? Am I boring you out of your minds? Because that speaks a message too. If I bore you out of your minds, it speaks a message. Some vessels are more useful than others. I'm kidding. You will find unhappy people even in the kingdom. They're unhappy because they've misunderstood the purpose on their life or they're not living in the right purpose for some reason. They desire to be a thumb when they're really a pinky. They desire to be a ring finger when they're really a pointer finger. They have seen and adopted someone else's vision rather than finding their own design because that takes too much work. In the popular churchianity out there, like that, I get to make up words as a pastor. It's much easier to adopt popular church vision than it is to develop your own. Because developing your own requires you to get before God and hear from Him. Adopting someone else's just requires you to evaluate what you consider success and adopt it. I'm asking you to have the courage to realize that the God over all of the universe cares about your life. He's examining it. And then conference with Him about what He wants from you daily. Get out of the Sunday school generic terms. Don't answer Jesus for every question. Don't say, well, He just wants me to love Him. Oh, He just made me to worship. That's all good and fine. What do you do each hour of the day? What motivates your thoughts? Why do you always feel frustrated or angry? Could it be that you're not in contact with the King, though He's trying to be in contact with you? Psalm 97, verse 6 says, The heavens proclaim. The word proclaim in Hebrew, if it's translated into Greek and then translated into English, do you understand that chain? Hebrew-speaking people recorded their words in Greek in the New Testament. Those words are then translated into English. That word would be preach. The heavens preach His righteousness and all the people see His glory. There is something about the creation that is preaching to you on a regular basis. It's trying to teach you. Turn with me to Acts 17. You've heard me say this many times before, but I'm going to ask you to give me a fresh slate. Don't let this be vain repetition. Consider these words. They were penned for your benefit by a man 
who spent an awful lot of time traveling with and being imprisoned. Traveling with people who were imprisoned and being imprisoned himself. Often beaten. He penned these words out of the earnestness of God moving through him for your benefit. Start in the 24th verse of the 17th chapter. The God who made the world and everything in it is Yahweh of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And He is not served by human hands as if or in the manner that He needed anything. Because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. It doesn't matter to me that you were a crack baby or that your mama beat you or your daddy didn't love you or any of those things. The Creator of the universe decided to give you life and anything else that you have. And the fact that you are here is a testimony to His greatness. If you demean Him, it's just a backhanded way of demeaning yourself. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determines the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. That in and of itself ought to bring you such encouragement that you don't know what to do. Get out of your mind. What happens if I miss God? God is bigger than you ever thought about Him being big. And He determined boundaries and set times and places for you so that you would be here and now. Because the God of the universe is trying to get across a message to you through His ambassadors and through His creation and through His very Word that you are special to Him. And that He wants to take you and make you His representative. He did this so that men would seek Him. What does God want from you? For you to find out what He wants you to do. He wants you to seek Him. And perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. The God in the high and lofty heavens, the Bible says, is not far from you. And He set up this whole ball of dirt flying around the sun so that you would reach out and find Him. Another quote for you. If the earth was located much farther away from the sun, we would freeze like the planet Mars. If it was much closer to the sun, then we would be burned up like the hot surface of Mercury, the 860 degree temperature of Venus. If the magnetic forces within our planet were stronger or weaker, life could not exist. If our earth did not revolve every 24 hours, then one half of the planet would be in permanent darkness without vegetation. Meanwhile, if the earth did not revolve, the other side of the planet would be an uninhabitable desert as it suffered from the overwhelming heat of permanent exposure to the sun. If our earth was not tilted at 23 degrees, we would not have the seasonal variation that produces the incredible abundance of crops that feed our planet's huge population. Without the 23 degree tilt, less than half of the present land used for cultivation of crops would grow vegetables. The moon produces the tides that continually replenish the oceans with oxygen allowing the fish to breathe. If the earth were significantly smaller, the lessened gravity would be incapable of holding the atmosphere that is essential for breathing. A much thinner atmosphere would provide no protection from the 25,000 meteors that burn up in the atmosphere over the earth every day. 
In addition, a thinner atmosphere would be incapable of retaining the higher temperatures required for human and animal life to exist. If our planet Earth was twice as large, the effect of the increased gravity would make everything on the planet's surface weigh eight times what it weighs today. There's feeling a little bigger to me right now. This increased weight would destroy many forms of animal and human life. Professor Robert Jastro has stated that the smallest change in any of the circumstances of the natural world, such as the relative strengths of the forces of nature or the properties of the elementary particles, would have led to a universe in which there could be no life and no man. They go on to list reasons in nuclear physics and reasons in chemistry and more gravitational arguments that make our life on our planet unique. And God plugged you into this unique, delicate balance at a specific time and place because He wanted you to seek Him. Because He wanted you to take notice of Him. Turn with me to Luke 12. We have two more Scriptures. But you know very well that I can take two Scriptures and preach for a couple hours, so don't relax yet. If you feel a heaviness coming over you, if you've begun to hear in this, oh boy, I haven't done this and I haven't done that, you are missing the boat. This should be your Valentine's Day present from God. You are special. You have some knowledge of that or you would not be here today. Some of you have borne great sacrifice to be here and are in the midst of battle doing your best to get your helmet of salvation squared rightly on your head. In fact, most of you are there. Earnestly desiring to be trained that you might produce fruit that yields 30, 60, and 100 fold. You have a lot to be commended for. This is not a message that tells you how badly you are failing. It's a message that is meant to tell you how badly God wants you to succeed. That what He is looking for from you is an acknowledgement that His ways are so far above your ways. But you should feel special because He's let you in on them. He's made you a part of His kingdom. It even delights Him, pleases Him to make you a part of His kingdom. Look at Luke 12, starting in verse 27. Consider how lively slaughter grows. <laughs> ah! <laughs> she left, huh? Yeah, uh, it's too late on the mother joke. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. This is so overdone. But you have to understand, Rabbi Yeshua, walking the earth somewhere around 3380 D, was the first to have ever said anything like it. And it was a phenomenal statement. Consider Donald Trump in all of his majesty. And I tell you, Nothing that he has compares with the beauty of the creation itself displayed in the smallest flower, the complexity of the human ear. (laughs) This was an earth-shattering statement meant to make people feel special. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you? Oh, you of little trust. 
And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. I was once told that we couldn't have a church here. There were not enough families. Apparently, there was a membership requirement for us to be considered a church. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The God of the universe, whose dominion will encompass all, is pleased to include you in on His kingdom and give it to you. That is no small thing. What if you found out tomorrow that you were an heir to some Saudi prince's kingdom and all that he had was suddenly yours? You'd be pretty happy, huh? You don't want to hear that you're the executor of an estate that was left in bankruptcy. But to hear that you're the an executor of an estate that is uh, worth billions and billions, that could be an exciting thing, huh? No, none of you are so materialistic that you would get excited about having billions of dollars at your disposal, right? Y'all wake up. The kingdom that our Father has created and is renovating, He is pleased to give to you. That is no small thing. It's the kind of thing that should make you willing to sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where the treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed and ready for service. Keep your lamps burning. What makes a lamp burn? Wow. That oil is the very presence of God in your life, His Holy Spirit. But you have to keep it burning. Paul spoke to his very good friend, somebody he considered a son, and he said, fan it into flame. When's the last time you took a day to do nothing other than put some more oil in your lamp and fan it into flame. Some of you are dry and lashing out at everything around you for no other reason than you don't have anything else to give because you have not taken time to receive more oil in your lamp. Spend some time in the Word. Spend some time worshiping God. As you begin to feel special in His presence, you'll be a better human being to everyone around you. When I hear the stories of your lives, from the first row to the back row, I hear about job changes in tornadoes that have destroyed buildings. Diseases caught at miraculous moments. Those kind of stories. Other people hear tragedy. I hear victory. Look at how God is directing your footsteps. We have people in this room that would not be here if, God, if Matthew didn't create a chat room. <laughs> a little decision in a Panera Bread affected somebody's life. Where they will go to high school. Where they'll go to college. The broadening of the influences in their lives. That's because God considers everything that we do. And He's working for our benefit. Turn with me to Matthew 10. We close here. 
Originally, I had planned to read you the whole chapter. <laughs> yeah, I think we've made our point. Jesus, just prior to the 10th chapter of Matthew, because there are no chapters in the original text, saw fit to include in the story of his life as recorded by Matthew a prayer. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. God's special revelation to you of who you are in the kingdom was intended to do something. For you to see the enormity of the renovation project going on on earth, Realizing how big God is and ask the project manager for more materials, more laborers. He wanted that. He wanted you to be in the business of making disciples, teaching them to obey, learning to put into practice the Word. That's what He wanted. It's no mistake then that the next story that follows is the sending out of the twelve. And He gives them authority to fix every problem that faces mankind. To be the restoring agent on earth. He tells them not to go to certain places because it had to start with Israel. In verse 11, we hear these words. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person. What do you think would make that person worthy? Well, there's a hint in this Hebrew idiom here. There and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. Greet the home. Hi, house. How are you? Do you know what the Jewish greeting was? Shalom. I want this household to have a sense that all is right with God and man. If the home is deserving, let your peace, your sense that all is right with God and man, rest on it. If it is not, let your sense that everything is okay and right return to you. If anyone will not welcome you, Or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the judgment day than for that town. Shake the dust off your feet. There was a saying, a teaching, it's recorded in the Mishnah in a section called Ethics of Our Fathers. It's the first chapter and fourth verse. And it was a teaching that predated Jesus, that Jesus, like every other observant Jew, would certainly have had memorized that the writer of this gospel, Matthew, a Jewish tax collector, certainly had memorized. And in their memorizing it and understanding it, this verse is pregnant with meaning. Here's the tractate out of the Mishnah. Yossi ben Yozer and Yossi ben Yohanan of Jerusalem received the transmission from them. Yossi ben Yozer used to say, Let your house be a meeting place for the sages. Cleave to the dust of their feet and drink thirstily of their words. In light of that, what Jesus is saying is look for a house who is willing to be so close in imitating your way of life that your dust gets on them. That they will drink thirstily of your words. That will bring a sense to their lives that all is right with God and man. If they will not receive that, then you take all of your influence, all of your peace, even the dust from your feet out of their house and leave them to be judged. That's what Jesus was teaching there. Awful lot of dust has been spread around in this church. 
and your lives are interacting with each other for one purpose that we might understand what the rest of the chapter is about. Look at verse 24. We'll finish with this last few paragraphs. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is not enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. For some of you, that ought to be a horrifying thought. There is nothing that you've concealed that God will not make known. For others who have been doing secret acts of kindness, that ought to be a very rewarding thought. When I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roof. When's the last time Jesus whispered something in your ear? When's the last time you were in the darkness of a prayer closet? Prayer closet is a wrong way to translate prayer shawl. Pull the shawl over your head and pray. When's the last time you got some special word from the king? that you went out and proclaimed from the rooftops. You're special enough for the God of the universe to watch your lives, to look for ways to impart things to you. Are you being receptive to that? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. You ever seen those stickers that ain't scared? They should be. They should be. We need to learn not to fear man, but to greatly fear God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? The word here is not penny. It's escarion. And it's one of the smallest values of coins that were, translated, that were used in first century Jerusalem. Two sparrows are sold for a tiny, tiny amount of money. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. If God directs two nearly worthless sparrows and will not allow them to touch the ground except for His will, what has happened to you in your life that caught God by surprise? Well, if you can take solace then in the fact that it has not surprised him. You might even take solace in the fact that he's considered everything that you do, that he has a purpose for your life, and that you're merely walking out his plan for you. It's just not your plan for you. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's very discouraging for us bald guys. What it should say is all of the pores meant to produce follicles. Are numbered. Amen, Darren? Why does God want you to know you're worth more than two sparrows? Why does God want you to know that He cares about the numbers of hairs on your head? So that you will not be afraid because we are worth far more than things that He cares for every day. Two sparrows. Guys, the overwhelming message in the creation and in this Bible is that God has placed value in you. You should value yourself and your neighbor because of that. You are special to Him. That's not the only message you'll ever hear from me. You'll hear me beat you with the Word, encourage you with the Word, do all of those things. But you need to know that the reason all of this attention is directed your way is because you are special to Him. And it's not enough to know it. 
It needs to show up in your actions. The next time you feel worthless and you feel like a failure, you need to consider what the God of the universe says about you and then act like it's true. We could go through all the list of insecurities that men and women have. How many of them would you find in a biblical text, though? There's not anything nearly so unattractive to God as somebody crippled by all of their insecurities because ultimately it's a self-reliance. Ultimately it says, I am inadequate and you're unable to help me, God. When what the Scripture is teaching you is that He is watching your every move, looking for ways to aid you because He loves you. I'm asking you to walk in a trust that that is true and then to begin to give Him credit for the near misses in your life. Y'all stand up and let's pray.